and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman, and today I'm talking to a man who stared adversity in the face from the time he was born, and doctors said he had less than 24 hours to live. Sean Stevenson is a board-certified therapist. His story has reached millions around the world, including Oprah and the Dalai Lama. He's one of the most charismatic speakers you could see, and the subject of a documentary called Three Foot Giant. He's also someone who's inspired me a great deal over the past 10 years. Here's his story. Sean, I want to start off by uh, listing off your resume. And for what it's worth, it'll probably be an incomplete resume, but it's an extensive one nonetheless. Uh, you are a motivational speaker, a therapist, an author, a husband... And all of these things while living day-to-day with osteogenesis imperfecta. First of all, where do you find the time and energy for all these things? You know, the energy comes in waves. I don't want to ever make myself sound like I'm some kind of superhero that always has the energy. Mm. You know, I, I go through seasons with my energy. There's times where, and I just finished a, a season of using a lot of energy Um, I was in a legal battle, and it was very dark and challenging and took a lot of energy out of me. And that was a a good three- to four-month period of my life. Uh, And so now I'm I'm more in a hibernation mode right now. I'm I'm licking my wounds. I am, uh, even though we won, we also lost because we went through that challenge, and we lost the time and and the investment of the money in the legal battles. And so... uh, to answer your question, you know, energy comes for me in waves. And right now I'm doing everything I can in my power to rebuild the reserves of the energy that I used. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you want me to get into it now, but there are three things that I do to really maintain a strong, impenetrable level of energy and confidence. Yeah, sure. Let's see them. Okay. So the first one, I call it the cure to insecurity. And that's self-care. So things like getting massages, doing breathing exercises, exercising the body with cardiovascular and weight, meditating, nature, connecting to my mentors, uh, creating content to put out into the world like I'm doing in this interview right now, journaling. So self-care is really what builds up your your security and your own internal self-worth. Um, the second thing is getting connected to your life purpose. So I'm on that right now by talking to you, mm-hmm. which is uh, to rid the world of insecurity, which comes back to teaching people about self-care. Um, and when you're on your when you're on your life purpose, it pulls you out of bed on days that you don't want to get out of bed because mm-hmm. it's the reason why you were born. Um, and the third is an empowering environment, spending time with people and in places that really empower you because empowering environments are, are critical. You become who you surround yourself with. When you're in the environment, you become the environment. So those are the three things that I do to rebuild the reserves of my energy, self-care, get connected to my life purpose and surround myself in an empowering environment. And I got to say, there are times when you go through periods of your life that are storms and dark days and you do your best to do your self-care but sometimes you, you don't do the best job. Sometimes you get a little lost along your way and you get caught in your own life that you forget that you're here for a bigger reason. 
And sometimes you get caught up in the drama and upset that you forget how important it is to put yourself into an empowering environment. Uh, there are a lot of things that you said in there that I want to come back to, but if we could first, uh, I mentioned out of the gate, you were born with osteogenesis imperfecta. How do you explain that to someone who's never heard of it before? So it's a rare bone disorder, and it affects the growth of the bones and the density of the bones. It's a collagen deficiency, so my bones are more fragile than most people. Mm-hmm. And because of that, throughout the course of my life, I've fractured for way less impact than, say, your bones would. So sneezing would break ribs. Putting on a pair of pants too quickly could break legs. Jeez. And by the time I was 18, I'd fractured over 200 times. How many people in the average population would this affect? I don't know those statistics um, because the research just continues to change on the different levels of the degree or the degrees of the disorder. Like, you know, I'm a more extreme case. The, the most extreme usually die at birth, and then I'm the second most extreme case. And so I know there's a lot less people with my variation of the disorder, but there's a lot of people who have the disease and don't even know they have it because they've only maybe fractured five to ten times in their life and they just think they're clumsy. And they're walking around normal, able-bodied looking, normal height. And so they they don't even know. So I'm not quite sure the statistics on it anymore. They, the numbers keep changing. But they, they claim that it's as common as cystic fibrosis. Uh, your odds of survival were about as slim as they come at one point in time. What did that picture look like? in those early years? Well, when I was born, the doctors told my parents I'd be dead within the first 24 hours. And, you know, my, my comment now is 38 years later, all those doctors are dead and I'm still on this uh, planet. So you can't always <laughs> trust the experts. And, uh, you know, in my life, I've been beating the odds all the time. You know, I just, uh, I just lost my 10th friend with my disabilities. Um, mm. I've known him since he was a little boy. He was, we were about six years apart. So, you know, he's not that, he wasn't that much younger than me. He was in his early thirties where I'm in my late thirties and he just died about uh, three weeks ago. And, you know, so my mortality is still put into my face about how fragile life can be. And, you know, growing up with this condition, simple things could injure me or kill me. And so, my parents did a phenomenal job of, of providing and protecting and keeping me safe and teaching me about the ways of the world so that I could go out on my own and take care of myself just as good. So, you know, it's uh, life is short for all of us in the big picture. However, it can definitely be cut short sooner for people with my condition. Is your actual life expectancy, I know there are different types of osteogenesis imperfecta, but for yours, does that have an effect on your life expectancy? Um, I think statistically it probably does because so many people with my disability and my severity of my condition, uh, they pass away from accidents. They pass away from things that you might be taken back for a few months would take me out, like a pneumonia or something. Yeah. Um, a car accident that would be minor could be more major for me. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, like I said, I watched 10 friends over the course of my life pass away prematurely. Mm. And I would say 
uh, only two or three of them were from natural causes. The other were from accidents. Uh, I'm guessing in your lifetime, you were told by a lot of people who you came across uh, what you could and could not do, what your ceiling was. What did those people tell you as you were a child growing up with your own dreams and ambitions of what you wanted to do in your life? Well, I think, and this is the part that a lot of people miss out on, is cynics and skeptics at their core, I believe, are really hopefully coming from a good intent. You know, they're scared. They don't want you to get disappointed. They don't want you to get let, let down, hurt. They don't want you to look bad. And so then they, they project their concerns onto you. And they, they work hard at trying to talk you out of getting let down. But I think that as you mature, hopefully, and you get more grounded in your own awareness of your being and getting grounded in your hopefully spiritual journey, you see that that's their path. Their path is that they're telling you you can't, but they really mean I can't. Mm. They're scared. They're scared because they also don't, and this is all sometimes often unconscious. If you're achieving your dreams, you're making them look bad. If right. you're if you're slaying your dragons and and doing courageous stuff, and they're not. In contrast, you're shedding light on their inactions, and that's uncomfortable. So it's just easier to be the crab in the bucket that pulls the other crabs down. Mm. And you know that's that's happened to me my whole life. Hopefully, as I've gotten older, and I and I do believe this, as I've gotten older, I've become less angry at those people because I, I feel more sad that they that they can't see that something's possible for themselves. So they feel the need to tear everybody else down. It's kind of like there's two ways to feel tall. One is to rise up, and the other is to knock everybody else down that's taller than you, so that you feel tall again. Right. And you know, the, the latter is a very low vibrational, uh, childlike, immature mentality that I don't think is sustainable. Did you carry that anger with you for a while as you were growing up? Yeah, definitely. How did you get rid of that? Well, I can't say I've fully gotten rid of it. Um, I still I bump into it now and then. It's like I get, re, I get reintroduced to parts of myself that I thought were gone on a regular basis. Um, I think that's part of being human. You think you finally licked an old behavior and then, shit, you bump back into it. But I've <laughs> certainly made strides to decrease the anger through meditation, through prayer, through just really exploring my spirituality. I mean, I was raised in a very religious community, and you know, I've definitely taken aspects of that and, and continued them on, but there's aspects that I didn't agree with. I didn't agree with the judgments and the, the, the mentality that we are all broken. Uh, I, I don't like that. I don't think that's accurate. Just trying to navigate my own spiritual path. I've studied many different forms of religion and spirituality, and I'm on a path to really recycle my anger into something good and empowering for the world. But I got to say, you know, I've had a lot of anger throughout my life and it manifested physically at times. I got kidney stones and there's a lot of scientific proof that kidney stones are encapsulated anger. Um, you know, if you ask a medical doctor, he'll say, oh, it's a, it's a calcium, you know, deposits and all this stuff. But yeah, but where did the calcium, you know, where did it come from? And some could say, oh, well, it's the water, it's this, that. 
Well, but we also know that the mind and the heart and the energy in our being can manifest things physically too. And as I've continued to work on my anger, I haven't had kidney stones. And I really do believe that uh, the mind-body connection is severely misunderstood. There is no connection between the mind and the body. It's the same thing. So the body is the mind and the mind is the body. You can't have an emotional experience without having a physical impact or a physical impact without an emotional experience. You know, there's a, a great analogy for anger, this idea that uh, you're holding on to this burning hot rock and you're carrying it with you and that's your resentment at somebody else. But the longer that you hold on to that, it's still burning you, you know, and you need to let that go and, and put it down. Take that anger and get it out of yourself. Uh, what were the challenges in doing that for you? Well, humans uh, are notorious, and I'm one of them. Uh, we're notorious <laughs> for wanting to be right. And uh, the ego, that's its job, is to always make you the good guy and make you right. Not always to make you the good guy, but always to be right, that's for sure. And, you know, sometimes it makes you right that you're an asshole, and sometimes it makes you right that you're a savior, and sometimes it makes you right that you were wronged and hurt and, and, and betrayed. And the process really is, what do you want? Do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? And when you choose to be happy, you have to let go of repeating a story that gives you a surge of righteousness. Was there a sense of anger for you or resentment for being born with your condition? Um, the condition, not being born, but the condition, absolutely. I was resentment toward God for a long while. Um, it was minor. I didn't share it with many people. You know, just that I, I struggled with a lot of issues around fairness. You know, what, what in life is fair? And it wasn't until later in life that I realized that fairness is an illusion, that no one got a better life than you. They just are playing the cards differently. And the people that have incredible lives that you admire, they are doing the best they can with the cards they've been dealt. In your case, uh, you mentioned your parents earlier and the support that you have. Um, your mom told you something. I believe it was around the time of grade four. And she was saying that you can choose to look at your life either as a burden or as a gift. How did that change your outlook on things? Well, you know, it's stuck with me to this day. The, the, your interpretation is what matters in life. If you interpret yourself as the villain, you will be the villain. If you interpret yourself as a hero, you'll be the hero. If you interpret yourself as that the world has taken things from you, you will act a certain way versus the world has granted you gifts. And my mom's pivotal question is going to be a gift or a burden. You know, it's, it's as applicable at 38 as it was eight. Who were your heroes in those years? Who were the people that you saw and thought, I want to be them? Uh, Tony Robbins. Uh, when I was, a, you know, in, in my teens, I, I saw him on infomercials and he heard his message and thought, God, if I could just, if I could have his mentality and his strengths and confidence and his perspectives on life, I feel like I would be really unstoppable. Um, I grew up in Chicago during the Michael Jordan era, and uh, so Michael Jordan was one of my heroes. 
I was really into basketball, still am today. And uh, that was a phenomenal experience. You know, there was uh, people throughout my life. You know, my heroes change. My heroes are always changing. I'm always on the lookout for the next hero. But the irony of all ironies, maybe it's not ironic, actually, but the uniqueness of all uniqueness is that uh, there are no heroes. There are only people who you deem as heroes. Because if you got into their souls and interviewed them, you'd find that they feel like they've made a bunch of mistakes and have regrets and have things not go as they planned. You know, there's a lot of people on this planet that probably deem me as a hero. And, you know, that's flattering and all my ego loves it. But the truth is I don't, I don't walk around feeling like I'm a hero. I just, I feel like a human being that's doing the best he can with what he's got. Right, right. We all have good days and bad days, and often we're the only ones privy to those bad days. Yeah, and not even just bad days, but bad seasons where you like, you string bad days together, you got a season, you know, and uh, it's, it's fascinating because the most convincing thing on the planet is emotion. When you are in a motion of elation and joy, you wondered why you ever had a bad day. When you are in a motion of sorrow and despair, you wonder what is wrong with the world and why why does it suck so bad? When you're dealing with the loss of a loved one or a relationship ends and your heart is broken feeling, you know, you, you wonder if you'll ever love again or if you'll ever be happy again. When, when you hold a new baby that you brought into the world and, and you feel so loved and so loving, you wonder why you ever, ever, ever had a bad day. So the emotions that we go through are so convincing. And that's why when you're in an emotion that's painful, you have to remind yourself to just keep going because it will pass. And when you're in an emotion that's positive, remember, just soak it all up because that emotion will not stick around forever. Well, it's that phrase, right? Uh, this too shall pass, the good and the bad. No matter what you're experiencing in that moment, it's fleeting. It's temporary. Absolutely. In your whole life, I, I, I journaled one morning recently, and, a, and I got this quote that came through me. It certainly wasn't from me. It was something divine. And it said, life is one moment stretched until death. It's just one moment. Like, it's just a moment that stretches to death. And the brain, people think that their memories are like, cataloged in some kind of filing cabinet it's not it doesn't work that way memories are not real they are not perfect depictions of what really happened every time you go review a memory it changes we're constantly rewriting our history and and that's why you can't trust the past and the future isn't real like it's it's not something that you can really ultimately go out into all that exists is this one moment that's stretching to death Right. It's, it's not like you can go out and, and visit the future. All you have is the now. I think it's often funny, too, how what we view as the past, you know, when we say, I wish things could be how they used to be. It's usually an idealized version of how things actually went. You know, we have a, an amazing ability to sugarcoat these experiences. Or demonify, or you know, demonify, if that's the word, um, where we make it wrong and bad. Like, we make it darker than it was, or we make it poor me or we make it why me or we make it what did I do why did I do that 
or why didn't I do that? Like, it's very easy to not just sugarcoat right, it, right, but right. poison coat it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, back to the public speaking. Where in your life did you go from being a kid watching Tony Robbins, seeing infomercials with him, to thinking, I have something to say too, and I want to get up on a stage and share it? Well, I had an advantage. I had an advantage. And the advantage was that everybody was already staring at me. So I might as well give him something to, to, to remember me by hmm. and to remember life by. So I was able to uh, I was able to take the eyeballs that were already on me and, and, and get paid to have them on me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, w- what I did is I really just got curious about life. I wanted to figure out my own mind. I wanted to figure out my own spirit. I wanted to figure out my own depths of my fears. I wanted to figure out my own dreams. And so I would be lying if I told you that that I created this mission because I only care about human race. I do care about the human race, but that's not the only reason. There's also a selfish driver trying to figure out me. And, and I get to figure out me real time with an audience. And I find that the more vulnerable and real I get, the more people feel connected to me and the more connected I feel to people. So it's been a dance. You know, I watched Tony Robbins for years and I thought I could do this. And I got hired to speak uh, my first speech while I was in high school. And I spoke about what it was like to have a disability. And I loved that speech so much that that brought me to another speech and another and another and another until finally it went from schools to hospitals to companies to conferences to conventions to government agencies to high-powered executives and it just continues to grow I'm, I'm always amazed by who when the phone rings who's on the other side looking for a speech in those early years you had a chance to meet your hero tony robbins mm-hmm. what did he tell you about speaking and what you could share with others so When I met him, I was only supposed to have about five, ten minutes. And I asked him if he would take his watch off and put it upside down on the table, on the coffee table in front of me. And he spent an additional, like, 45 minutes to an hour with me. And uh, we just got lost in conversation about life. And I remember a lot of the points. He he taught me that uh, you need to learn how to make money while you sleep. Sean, you need to... uh, need to motivate people for their reasons, not yours. It was probably one of my favorite conversations I've ever had in my life. Still remember it to this day? Oh, yeah. Uh, at what point in your life, you're speaking to students, then hospitals and, and businesses, at what point do you start thinking therapy is the next step for you uh, in to, becoming a therapist? Yeah, in becoming a therapist. Uh, although we all need therapy. Um, uh, becoming a therapist, I was... I was speaking to an audience at a church, and a young lady, around junior high age, came up to me and she rolled her sleeves up and she had cuts all up and down her arms, and she said, why do I do this to myself? And I didn't have the answer. And Martin, that was a very scary moment because I, uh, I felt ill-prepared, ill-equipped to handle an audience if I didn't go and research how the mind worked. And that's when I went back to school and uh, 
uh, became a doctor of clinical hypnosis to understand the unconscious mind. What causes a human being to melt down? What causes a human being to want to mutilate themselves? What causes a human being to want to end their own life? And these, these topics fascinate me tremendously. I never grow bored of studying the human being. What has that taught you about yourself in, in studying to be a therapist and in being a therapist? Yeah, uh, it taught me that you think you're in control, but you're not. That your brain chemistry and your hardwired nervous system is stronger than your willpower every day of the week. That you take a human being, you scare the life out of them, and they will do or not do things they didn't think they were ever capable of. We're all savages if we're left to our own devices and not cared for. Uh, that's why I believe security and security is self-care. If you take a human being and you strip them of self-care or care in general, uh, you, you return them to animals. And uh, these humans, they can think up inventions like the smartphone and flying machines and all that. You, uh, you strip them of their ability to take care of themselves or be cared for, and they resort to barbaric conditions. You know, so often we are our worst critics. We get mired in doubt. We think, I'll never be able to achieve this, or if only I could achieve this, but this or that. Uh, how have you overcome that voice in your head? And how do you continue to confront that voice in your head? Yeah, I was going to say, I have not, I've not overcome it. Um, it's a process. It's a process of, you know, I'm, I'm a very boring speaker in this regard, and that is I keep coming back to self-care because when you don't take great care of yourself, you, the best analogy I can give to this is imagine you were in an accident and you couldn't walk for a while and you had a nurse to take care of you, and the nurse was very erratic. Sometimes we'd come in and help you, sometimes wouldn't. Sometimes we'd be mean to you, sometimes wouldn't. Sometimes would just leave you all to your own and didn't, didn't give you your food and didn't help you out and get to the bathroom and stuff. Would you trust that nurse? No, no. So here's my point. That nurse lives inside of you. If you were had erratic, inconsistent care tendencies for yourself, do you wonder why you don't trust yourself? And I believe, everybody says, oh, the answer is self-love. I used to think that, like, just love yourself, love yourself, love yourself. But you can't love yourself if you don't trust yourself. Because if you go to love yourself and you don't trust yourself, you're like, no, this is a lie. I don't, I don't believe this. And this is why you got to take great care of yourself to trust yourself. And once you trust yourself, then you can love yourself. So it's, a, it's this process of care, trust, love. And, you know, when I doubted myself, it's because usually I've not taken great care of myself, which then means I don't trust myself, which we call doubt. And when you doubt yourself, then you can't, you don't feel worthy of love, therefore you don't feel worthy of praise or worthy of success or worthy of anything. So it all, I like to make things as simple as possible for me and the fundamentals are take great care of yourself so then you end up trusting yourself so then you end up being able to love yourself. And then when you love yourself, then you can 
proceed during some of the biggest challenges. So it's not enough to tell yourself, you know, that you matter and that you're important. You have to show yourself and treat yourself like you matter. Yeah. Affirmations, affirmations without actions are hollow. If anything, are, are very confusing because it's like spraying perfume on a ball of poop. Like, <laughs> like, yeah, that's great. Then you have a stinky ball of poop that smells a little bit perfumey. It's not real. You didn't change the context. But if you cleaned up your environment, then wonderful things can emerge from that. One of the other things that we do a lot, aside from doubting ourselves, is we pity ourselves. You know, we pity our situation. We think, poor me or why me, and it's not fair. Uh, you talked about this already. Uh, there's a danger in that. What do we do to ourselves when we're pitying ourselves? What do we rob ourselves of? I would say what we do is when we pity ourselves, it's like a drug. It feels good when it's going in, but it's never enough. And then when you start to come to and realize you've been feeling sorry for yourself, you got to feel even more sorry for yourself to, to handle the load of disappointment underneath it and shame and embarrassment. It's, it's a drug. Self-pity is a drug. And you got to clean yourself up. You know, I mean, you got to really go into a detox and say, I created this reality. It may not be the greatest reality I could have created, but it's what it is. And I need to make the best of it. And I need to, I need to move forward and let go and forgive myself. I mean, this is something that I'm really enamored with because I'm, I need it in my own life. You have to be able to forgive yourself. You, you sometimes sometimes your best is really bad and you have to know that that's going to happen what are the things in your case that you've needed to forgive yourself for or give permission to yourself to let go of um ways of being in relationships um things i said or did or didn't say and people got hurt things that i've done in my business that weren't smart blowing money out of ego and not taking good care of my own finances at times in my life, ignoring, ignoring what needs to be done because it's hard, regret from opportunities missed. You know, I, I had a, a small example here for you. One of my, my mentors, Wayne Dyer, who I call him a mentor, but I only met him once. I had his personal contact information sitting on my desk for months before he died, somebody had said, you know what, he really adored you, you should reach out to him. And uh, I didn't, because I was scared that I wasn't going to be successful enough for him to deem me worthy as a, a student of his or a friend of his. And, you know, and then when he died, it was, it brought up a lot of regret. Like, holy shit, like, why didn't I go for it? But I think that's, that's part of life, is knowing you're going to, Sometimes do things and not do things that later you shake your head at. But in the big picture, maybe that was the greatest lesson that he gifted me in his death was don't don't wait, Sean. There's that apprehension, right, of, of meeting your heroes, of meeting people that mean so much to you that you don't want to. It's almost too precious that you don't want to spoil it by actually meeting them and then having you somehow spoil the interaction or they don't live up to your own ideals of that interaction, right? I once went to a, 
a nightclub in my 20s when I was single. And uh, I met this beautiful woman. Ah, she was perfect in every physical way. And she went to tell me her name, and I asked her not to. And she's like, what? I'm like, please don't. And because I knew I wasn't going to see her again. I was just out of town, and we just danced on the floor for one dance. And I knew she was going to go her direction. I was going to go mine. And I would probably never, ever see her again. And I, you know, I just wanted to keep her perfectly in my mind as, you know, pristine, right? And the moment she'd tell me her name, she'd then tell me probably if she had a boyfriend or she'd tell me, you know, that she, you know, is going through a breakup or something, something human that she would tell me that that would take her off that fun little pedestal I put her on. Um, And it's true, you know, we do that to our heroes, like... I remember the first day I saw the the humanness to Tony Robbins, it, it broke my spirit, you know, and I was like, oh, you're not perfect. Shit, I thought there was somebody perfect on the planet that I could grow up and, and, and be just like, but I'm glad I saw his human side. I'm glad I saw an aspect to him that was real because now, all these years later, I've become a guru myself to people and... I have tried to position myself constantly in interviews like this to say, I am not perfect. I make mistakes. I have regrets. I have moments where I look at back and I go, what the hell was I thinking? You know, I, I, I try to share with people that I'm fumbling around on this dirt ball called earth just like everybody else. I just, I'm just a little bit more articulate than most maybe. <laughs> I don't know why, but it helps for me to remember, you know, everybody everybody has those moments where they do dumb stuff that they wish they didn't do. Everybody at some point is throwing up into a toilet bowl or it's coming out the other end when it's not supposed to or <laughs> people just slip up in other ways and, and show their humanity. You know, we all have those moments. They're not unique to us mere mortals. They happen to our idols and... It's what makes all of us human. Um, yeah. I want to tell you a story. And not too many years back, back when I was a, a high school student, I was looking for that inner confidence, that, that antidote or that key to insecurity, that, uh, I guess, permission to dream big. And I came across three words, ones that you know very well. Mentality creates reality. Tell me the power of those words in your life. I remember where I was when I first heard that quote um, come from within me. I know it's been probably shared and uh, thought of by many other people, so uh, there's that. But I was on the floor in my buddy's apartment in San Diego, and I was up really early, and I was meditating, and uh, I was really like high vibration, really connected, the frequency of God type feeling and I heard mentality creates reality and I'm like God that's so true that like heaven and hell as Mother Teresa said heaven and hell is here on earth and it's in how you are viewing your surrounding like you can be you can be in a prison cell and be elated or you can be in a mansion and be in despair and it comes down to how you are interpreting reality. You know, you don't have control over practically anything in life. But what I do know we have control over is 
what we make something mean. You know, and when I, as a therapist, when I work with somebody who's in the depths of despair, their child committed suicide or was killed by a drunk driver, or their wife died of cancer, they're just, they, they don't feel like they have anything left to live for. Uh, my mentality is the same, which is you need to be very careful what you make this experience mean to you, because if you make it mean that the world is a dark place and that, that you got screwed over and that it's unfair, what will happen is you will perpetuate a dark reality that will spiral out of control. You know, if somebody's daughter is killed by a drunk driver, they need to make that mean that life is precious and that people should be responsible for their actions and they can go on to, that person can go on to maybe build a, a foundation or a legacy for their child or live a life that they live out all their dreams in honor of their child that passed away um, that they aren't going to throw the rest of their life away because that really it makes their child's death in vain. It didn't matter. And so what you make something mean, like I built a whole career out of making my condition mean such good things, you know. I still struggle at times. I did this morning. I looked down at my leg and I'm like, it's only a foot long. Like, it's this like hairy baby leg looking thing. And I'm like, how the hell is a 38 year old <laughs> man have this appendage? It doesn't make sense to me. And this is 38 years of living in this container. Yeah. It's not that you choose an interpretation and that's what sticks with you. You have to re-choose the reality. You have to recreate the reality you want every single day. Nothing, I don't think anything positive ever really sticks. I think you have to re-stick it like a post-it note every day in a new position. And uh, yeah, I think it's a process. Uh, Mark Twain has a very famous quote. Uh, the two most important days in your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. You talked about, about your purpose before. Uh, what is your reason for getting up in the morning, for getting out of bed on those days when you, you look down at your legs and you wonder why, or on those days when you feel like you need to re-energize and you need time? Well, uh, my mentor asked me a question that I'll pose to your listener, and that is, why were you born? Like, why were you born? The Mark Twain quote, you know, the, the day you realize why you were born. And... For me, I know I was put into this container, and I, I actually have a spiritual belief that I'd like to share with you that I chose to be in this container with my creator, and that my container, my container is a part of my purpose. It is a tool that I needed to achieve my purpose. I am meant to teach the human race about insecurity and self-care and self-trust and self-love and self-esteem, and I actually think I have a better tool for that than Tony Robbins. And I think he would agree with me that when a three-foot-tall man in a wheelchair tells you that you can live life without feeling bitter, and you can live life and look at what you do have instead of what you don't have, you're more likely to listen to that than somebody six-foot-seven that looks like an Adontis, you know? So... Why was I born? To rid the world of insecurity. And I think that insecurity causes us to do some of the dumbest things on the planet to ourselves and others. 
I believe insecurity is the root of war. I believe insecurity is the root of violence. I believe that insecurity is the root of self-sabotage and, and um, self-mutilation and, and just a lot of um, human-made illnesses because we're, we don't feel like we're enough. And when you feel like you're not enough, then you, you reach out for behavioral choices and substances and activities that, it, that can be very destructive. And so what gets me out of bed is how can I use this laboratory that is my body to recreate solutions to climbing out of pain, climbing out of self-sorrow, climbing out of self-sabotage, rising up from self-doubt and, and shame and anger and bitterness. And, you know, that's a, that's a level of energy that cannot be matched by any amount of drugs or caffeine or anything because I believe it's why I'm still here, you know. I've faced death so many times and yet I'm still here and I believe it's because my why to be here is, is stronger than practically anyone I know. For those times of insecurity in your life, in those early years when as humans, you know, we start to look outside for our validation rather than to have it come from within, you start to look to your peers as you're in elementary school and then middle school and high school and then into your early 20s, uh, and you're looking outside of yourself for that validation. Uh, what were your own experiences with insecurity at that time? Uh, they probably weren't that much different than now. Uh, I don't think your insecurities ever go away. I think you either live a life that amplifies them or makes them dormant. My insecurities back then were my condition, my appearance. You know, was I flawed? What was wrong with me? Why didn't women want to find me attractive when I was in my dating years? And why couldn't I play sports like all my other friends? Why could my other friends sneak out their bedroom window and climb down the trellis and, and go drink? And I, I was trapped in my childhood bedroom until I was 31 years old. Um, you know, it's uh, a lot had to do with my disability. Um, I think that was my the, the stem of a lot of the biggest insecurities. So it it kind of comes back to this idea that no matter who you are, successful or not, or, or perceived as successful or not, you have those insecurities. It's more about what you do in spite of those insecurities or in spite of the doubts you experience, the way that you're feeling. I wouldn't say it in spite. I'd say amidst. You know, you want to know some of the most insecure people I've met are billionaires and multi 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 millionaires they're they're running away from something and i'm not saying that money is a bad thing uh, i believe your insecurities can when used properly they can fuel a lot of great dreams you know uh it's quite possible that insecurities have built skyscrapers and smartphones and jet engines and i do believe that insecurity may have a purpose here but i don't think they need to dictate our emotional conditions. I think we need to live a life, I, like what could we build, what could we do if we did feel like we were enough? Hmm. Isn't that a thought, yeah. I've heard you mention mentors a lot in our conversation, the significance of them in your life. Where does that value for you come from, that importance of having people in your life that are constantly teaching you something, the process of constantly learning from others? Well, I think it's a very lonely existence to try to figure it all out by yourself. 
there are some people, I've met a couple people in my life who they didn't have any mentors and they just, they bootstrapped it all by themselves, but they're frankly some strange people. Um, and I don't, I like to be a little bit more grounded and accessible to other humans. Um, and mentors have, have brought me such value. I have mentors in money, mentors in health, mentors in love, mentors in sex, mentors in creativity, mentors in friendship, mentors in writing, mentors in speaking. You know, I have mentors in so many different areas of life and none of them have it all together. They've spent a lifetime usually putting together one piece. You know, I, uh, I love the quote, one of my, um, one of my mentors quotes this other mentor of his that said, God gave me 98% of my brain to focus on this and 2% to run the rest of my life. You know, and you could put whatever you want in this, ballet, baseball, speaking, you name the skill set. But, uh, you know, we're all just, we all have the pieces, but that's why we have to come together to make the puzzle. And because nobody has all the pieces individually, we're all learning from each other by connecting the dots together. Sean, I'll wrap this up with uh, one more question. And I think often when we talk about happiness, uh, I know one of the keys in my life that has been really useful is gratitude, you know, finding things that you're thankful for. Mm. What are the things that you continue to be thankful for in your life? Um, my wife, Mindy, is one of the strongest human beings, one of the wisest, even keel. I am an emotional roller coaster. I, I'm a great actor because of it on stage. I have I can I can tap into the high highs and the low lows. So I'm fiercely entertaining in my daily life. But she is she's that steady stream that's always consistent that I admire. So I'm grateful for her and our marriage and our friendship. I am I'm grateful for my health. I know that might sound weird coming from a three foot tall man in a wheelchair, but at this moment in time, I'm not in any, any excruciating physical pain. So that's a, that's a plus. Can't say that about a month ago, but I can say that now. Um, I am grateful for my friends. I have some of the best friends on the planet. I am grateful for my skills. The ability to get in front of any group of people at any time and have something to say, something I take for granted. I don't realize that everybody out there doesn't have that skill. That puts me in a league of, of my own. To be able to go to any part of the world and talk to different groups and, and know that I'm always going to entertain and educate and connect. So I'm super grateful for my skill sets. I am... Uh, I'm grateful for my message and my, my purpose because most people go their whole life and never even question why they were born. And I get to tap into it every single day. Thanks for your time today, Sean. I appreciate it. You bet. My pleasure, brother. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you did, please, please, please do me a favor and hit subscribe, rate, review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts from. All those things help other people discover the show. If you want to know more about Sean, there's a special deal. Head over to seanstevenson.com forward slash story untold. 
you can sign up for free access to Sean's principles on how to live an empowered life. Again, that's seanstevenson.com forward slash story untold. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Next week on Story Untold, find out what it's like to be homeless on Vancouver's Lower East Side and end up getting a second chance. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was a story untold. See you next time.